Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 114, Unsolved Mysteries of the Unknown. And welcome to episode 114 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and tis the season for some spooky stuff. Wow, that was really cheesy. Anyway, it's been a spooky hellscape of a year as it is, so like the horrors of Halloween look like an episode of The Magic Garden, but I thought that with it being October, I thought it would be a little seasonal, and I'm going to spend my time here talking about the unknown. And this is an episode that's been an idea I've had since before I started this podcast. It's been in my topics list since I first created it back in 2012 or 2013, I had intended to actually do it two years ago. At least that's what the notes dated August 7th, 2018 say. But I put it off for whatever reason. I think it might have gotten bumped for my episode about the new Teen Titans or something. Anyway, that's not that important. What is important is that I'm here and I'm doing it. And the inspiration for this episode goes back 30 years to when I was in junior high school and would spend time in the library flipping through whatever book looked interesting. Yeah, I was a total library mole back in those days, and yes, I still had friends. And yes, those friends were real, and we did hang out. But the library was one of the few places that I was allowed to go on my own via my bike, and since checking out books was completely free, I would go there on a constant basis and check out way more than I could possibly read in the time before they were due back. Heck, I still do that. By the time I was in junior high school, I had graduated from the library's kids' section, and that meant I could go explore the adult stacks that were in the bigger room. I personally loved the layout of the old Sable Public Library. 
This library was a building that opened in 1966, which means that it was built in my favorite style of public buildings architecture, which is mid-century modern. And oh man, it was this great open air reading room space with the shelves on the perimeter both above and below i'll swipe a picture from the historical society's website because it's just so great and even looking at the orange carpeting in those pictures takes me back so this building was just one of my favorite places to go and every time i went there i had a pattern for browsing First, I would go to the lower level of the fiction section and check out the science fiction paperbacks, because as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, the library had just about all of the pocketbook Star Trek novels, as well as a number of other series. Then I'd head over to nonfiction, starting with section 741, and eventually moving to the area of the Dewey Decimal System that is most appropriate for this show, which is section 001, otherwise known as General Knowledge, and the copy of Mystic Places that I checked out of the Jefferson Madison Regional Library in Charlottesville to do research for this very episode has a label of 001.94. That's where I saw a number of books about weird stuff, including alien encounters and UFOs. Now, I cannot tell you for certain what book or television show started all of this interest in the paranormal or aliens, I'm sure that my rewatching Star Trek movies and, well, aliens all the time had something to do with it, but it's also possible I came across a book at one point or maybe even a television show or a special. I guess that probably isn't as important as what I do know sparked my interest in weird and unexplained things, and that is the early ads for Time Life's Mysteries of the Unknown. Chicago. A man is about to get on a routine flight. Suddenly he pauses. He doesn't know why, but he's got to walk away. An hour later, the plane goes down in flames. It's dismissed as chance. Britain. A woman has a sudden image of a black mountain that's moving, with children trapped underneath it. Two hours later, a Welsh schoolhouse is buried in an avalanche of coal slag. It's dismissed as coincidence. Northern Texas. An unidentified flying object is reported by at least a dozen people. Although there were no storms in the area, it's dismissed as lightning. Now, Time Life Books announces an important new library, Mysteries of the Unknown, a series that explores the most controversial phenomena of our time and tells you everything that can be known. The Midwest. A mother feels a sharp pain in her right hand. Far away at that exact same moment, her daughter screams as she touches a hot pan. Just chance? Or is it telling us something about our own untapped capabilities? Mysteries of the Unknown goes deeper into unexplained phenomena than ever before. It documents the facts and uncovers what people were never willing to talk about. Stonehenge. A visitor fashions a wire antenna in the shape of an ancient Egyptian symbol. He points it at the stones and a surge of power rushes into his arm, knocking him unconscious. Was it all in his mind? Or was it much more than that? To experience Mysteries of the Unknown, examine your first volume, Mystic Places, for 10 days free. Then decide if you want to dismiss it. To order your first book, Mystic Places, call 1-800-532-1100. Examine it for 10 days. Keep it and pay just $12.99 plus $2.98 shipping and handling. Other books will follow, one about every other month. Keep only the ones you want. Cancel at any time. Call 1-800-532-1100. 
Time Life Books as a company was a subsidiary to the larger media company of Time Life, which published both of those news and lifestyle magazines. I think that by the time this series came out, life, while still being published, was in its waning years. But there is a whole other talk we could have about how important Life magazine was during the earlier part of the 20th century. My school library has bound hardcover collections of life in its reference section, and I absolutely love flipping through them. The photographs, the stories, the ads, it's this wonderful time capsule that's both historical and Americana. Time, as a magazine, is still going pretty strong. But during the 1980s, Time Life was on the forefront of the specialty subscription when it came to both music and books. It's another story for another time, but Time Life Music was right up there with companies like KTEL, selling compilation albums via TV commercials. You know, the ones where the song titles scrolled up the screen while two lovers nuzzled in front of a fire or walked along a beach. Well, they did this for book series as well. If you watched enough syndicated television or basic cable back in the 80s and 90s, you eventually saw an ad for a Time Life book series. And if it wasn't for Mysteries Unknown, it was possible that it was for either their book series on the Civil War or the Home Repair and Improvement series. Those are the ones that featured commercials starring Bob Vila. There were other series as well. Planet Earth, The Third Reich, Voyage Through the Universe, The Enchanted World, and World War II were among them. And Wikipedia has a pretty comprehensive list of all of the Time Life book series. This all was, as Time Life product manager Tom Corey, who came up with the idea for Mysteries of the Unknown, says in an article posted to Atlas Obscura, the era of, quote, books as furniture. And I'm going to be referring to that Atlas Obscura article quite a bit in this section because it's a great history of the Mysteries of the Unknown book series. I'll also link to it in the show notes. The phrase books as furniture might make you chuckle a little bit, and it might sound a little pejorative, but it is very apt, and we still see this to this day, maybe not in terms of mail-order book series, but through coffee table books and other impressively oversized hardcovers that are constantly on display at the front of your local Barnes & Noble stores. Heck, Barnes & Noble even publishes and sells fancy-looking editions of famous works of literature, keeping alive the idea of this handsome volume, which is an important selling point of any collection, because the spines of all the books in the Time Life book series match up and they look really nice on a shelf, hence books as furniture. And those of us with trade paperback and graphic novel collections know exactly what I mean. And some of you who are listening are even looking at your Marvel Masterworks or DC Archive shelves right now. So in this era of books as furniture, where a series like The Old West or The Civil War were appealing to the adult channel surfer, why Mysteries of the Unknown? Well, that article I mentioned from Atlas Obscura earlier gives us some backstory on it and also clues us into its success as one of the best-selling Time Life book series. Mysteries of the Unknown debuted in 1987 and was published through 1991, with 33 total books in the series seeing print. The offer that you heard in the commercial was similar in model to the other subscription series. Keep all the ones you want and cancel at any time. 
According to the article, the books came out because there had been more widespread interest in the paranormal and the unknown in the 80s, and they were inspired by the success of Timeless Enchanted Worlds series, which was basically a book about anything you'd see in your average Dungeons and Dragons manual. Tom Corey is quoted in the Atlas Obscura article as saying that they saw success with Enchanted Worlds and then started looking for topics that were more odd in nature. The subsequent market research led them to what would become Mysteries of the Unknown. Sales were all right when it debuted in 1987. The editors at Time Life weren't too hip to the series, though, saying, with Corey saying, oh, they all hated that stuff. But by the fall of 1987, sales went through the roof, partially, or maybe just coincidentally, due to something called the Harmonic Convergence. This took place on August 16th and 17th of 1987 and was considered the world's first synchronized global peace meditation. It also coincided with an alignment of planets in the solar system, something that had been predicted by an ancient Mayan calendar. Supposedly, this was all going to rush in a new, quote, age of cosmic rebirth. And look, I don't know how believable that is, but it did boost the interest in the series and sales shot through the roof. Then came the commercials. How would you explain it? A woman in Wisconsin is doing the dishes when suddenly she's possessed by a terrifying feeling. She's positive that her young daughter has just been in an accident. She quickly makes a desperate phone call only to learn that her feeling was true. How would you explain this? A dozen people around the world who never met each other describe an encounter with a being from space and their descriptions of the creature match almost exactly. And how do you explain this? A man's heart stops beating in a hospital and he sees a blinding light that doesn't frighten him but fills him with an indescribable feeling of peace. And how can you explain the growing number of people who feel that they've had a brush with something beyond our everyday understanding? Maybe no one can fully explain these things, but they can no longer be ignored. That's why Time Life takes a serious look into this world with a remarkable new series, Mysteries of the Unknown, to provide an objective and comprehensive look at what may lie beyond our ordinary reality. How can you explain this? Four men are drawn to an ancient Anglo-Saxon fort, site of a fierce battle. They enter the shadows of a ring of trees, and without warning, one of them is grabbed by an unseen force, lifted five feet in the air, and suspended for 30 full seconds. There are so many hints of a world more remarkable than we ever imagined, and of abilities that we barely suspect. Send for your first volume on a free trial basis, and see if you can explain these things away. This was the second ad that aired, and I remember seeing it quite a few times. I also remember that the portion where they show the repeated drawings of the aliens scared the ever-loving crap out of me to the point where it gave me nightmares. Other commercials included this one from 1989, which starred a then-unknown Julianne Moore. I would never have believed it until one night I woke up around 3 o'clock in the morning. I felt something cold against my shoulder. It was the ceiling. I was looking down at my own body. Doesn't make any sense to me. I wouldn't believe it for a second. I don't know. I dreamt something once and it came true the next day. Maybe there is something to it. It's all just coincidence. That's what I think. 
I was uh, thinking of my childhood friend the other day. I hadn't thought of her for years. Then all of a sudden the phone rings, and it's her. You tell me that's coincidence. There's a word for it, the paranormal, and it's one of the biggest issues of our age. Now, Time Life Books brings you Mysteries of the Unknown that looks into every area from ESP to precognition to alien encounters to give you all the sides. I'm a scientist. I'm willing to be open-minded. But in my profession, we live by positive proof. I still say it's mass hysteria. My daughter didn't want to get on that school bus. I didn't know why. But something told me to take her seriously. I'm glad I did. Even if just some of these things are real, do you know what that would mean? Here in one place are the newly researched facts, first-person reports, and scientific experiments, so you can decide for yourself. There are so many hints of a world more remarkable than we ever imagined. If you've ever wondered about the unknown, examine your first volume for 10 days free and take a serious look at a world that can no longer be ignored. I never thought I would believe in it until it happened to me. As well as this later ad campaign, which added the slogan, Read the Book. Great mystery. Father, son, earth mother, give thanks for all you've What's given. What's going on? An incantation. Native Americans believe there's a spiritual energy here. Do you? Well, I am intrigued with mystic places from some of my reading. How about you? Have you read a ben Randall, chance to read talking this? about Time Life's captivating series, Mysteries of the Unknown. Hmm. Mystic places. Not my thing, but. It looks like you're into it. I'm beginning to think there are special powers at these mystic places. Places like Mystic Connecticut, Mystic Georgia. I'm talking a lot closer, like the Arizona-California desert. What's mystic about that? Read the book. Read what was found there. Incredible giant figures like the 500-year-old Mojave twins. Why were they drawn? Read the book. And what about the Bermuda Triangle? That's right. A pilot we know once had a wild experience there. Yeah? Anything like Bruce Gernon's? First, he was enveloped by a mysterious cigar-shaped cloud. Then the paranormal experiences really started. Like what? Read the book. Read about the strange voyage of Cleopatra's Needle, a 68-foot pillar dedicated to the sun gods. What happened? Read the book. Read Mystic Places. It's yours free for 10 days. Keep it and other volumes will follow, one about every other month, including psychic powers, then psychic voyages, and dreams and dreaming. Each is an unbiased presentation, so you can draw your own conclusions. I'm getting psyched up about this psychic business. Then why not get tickets for the Sacred Earth Tour? Oh, we'll get the tickets. And the books. I gotta admit that I'm partial to the original ads because of their creepiness, and while the Read the Book slogan became a pretty well-known catchphrase for the time, that ad still sounds like one of those annoying radio commercials where people have a random conversation. Mr. Simpson, I guarantee you will come up with a commercial that can save your business. You know those radio ads where two people with annoying voices yammer back and forth? I invented those. (coughs) It happens all the time. But hey, those ads were popular, and like I said, 33 different Mysteries of the Unknown books were published. I'm not going to list them all here, I'll put that in the show notes, but here are some of them. Alien Encounters... Dreams and Dreaming, Hauntings, Mysterious Creatures, Mystic Places, Mystic Quests, Phantom Encounters, The Psychics, The Search for Immortality, Secrets of the Alchemists, 
The UFO Phenomenon, and Visions and Prophecies. I never actually owned any of these. I was not in the position to purchase anything more than a comic book and penny candy back in 1987 because I was 10 years old and apparently living in Mayberry or Riverdale. But like I said, I went to the library and once I spotted one of the books on the shelves, I was determined to find as many as I possibly could. The only problem was that they weren't exactly easy to find in the card catalog because they were often listed by their individual volume names instead of Mysteries of the Unknown. So unless I knew the name of the individual book, like Mystic Places, I didn't know where it would be. Or did I? After all, these were books as furniture, and every single one of them looked the same. With the same black cover the same black spine, and the same title font on that spine. So what did I do? Well, I would go to the library and start looking on each shelf of the nonfiction section to see if I could spot a thin black spine book. And I did that starting in section 001 and going all the way to section 999. And not just once. I did it every single time I visited the library for the time I was like really into checking these books out. And each time I'd grab at least one of them, although I never really read them. I mean, I might have read sections of them, but it's not like I sat down and read them cover to cover. I usually just flip through them, maybe read a few of the sections and the articles, let them sit in my room until I had to return them. Some of them I checked out more than once. That UFO phenomenon, alien encounters one, the hauntings one. I remember checking those out multiple times. But hey, I remember the pictures inside being cool. And uh, some of the stories were pretty fascinating. And it's been 30 years, 30 years since those days of combing through the library. And as I thought of how to research this episode, I went back to the same place I used to go 30 years ago. All right, I did not go back to the same exact place because that building is no longer in use by the public library. They built a brand new one a few, about 10 or 15 years ago. But I, I did check out to see if the Saville Public Library has a copy of any of these because um, they have an online card catalog. So I just searched it and they do still have a copy of the UFO phenomenon listed. So even though they've culled most of the series over the years, something does remain. No, what I did is I went to my own public library, the Jefferson Madison Regional Library in Charlottesville. I looked up what they have in their card catalog. I managed to snag five of them. And I actually read those cover to cover. So I'm going to be highlighting Mystic Places, Mystic Quests, The Psychics, The Search for Immortality, and Secrets of the Alchemists. I'll be starting with Mystic Places, mainly because that's the book that you got when you signed up and made that phone call. And honestly, I'm not going to go through each of these books in fine detail because that would be a really, really long episode. I'd say, well read the book. But these aren't exactly easy to come by these days, meaning you can't just go order them on Amazon or your local Barnes and Noble. Sure, you can find them used on Amazon and and some full sets show up on eBay. But I can also imagine that if you're one of the type of people who likes to go to used bookstores or antique junk shops, like those sorts of things, uh, maybe the occasional garage sale, you might find them. I'm actually now kind of curious as to whether or not the garage sale gloat crew has ever come across uh well mysteries of the own or really any of those time life book sets either complete or uh or in part and if they've ever actually 
you know, bought them and then turned them around for a profit on eBay. Anyway, back to the books. If Mystic Places was your trial offer, it's actually a really good trial offer because instead of giving you a book that is about some weird, obscure thing or something that might have a passing interest in, like, you know, Secrets of the Alchemists, which I'll get to later, for instance, you start your series with some of the well, most well-known real-life places in the world as well as some of the most well-known legendary places, like, for instance, Atlantis, which opens the book. And just like you will hear me say with any of the other books that I read, this is a pretty thorough retelling of not just the legend of the lost city of Atlantis, but where it has made appearances in ancient literature, such as in Plato, and how through history there have been people with supposed insights as to what the city contained and how it was almost magical in nature. And that history goes all the way up to the 20th century, because there's always somebody who's psychic or claims to be psychic or says they can communicate with the people of the city or they know where it's located or whatever. And it's a, it's, it provides background on, on just how far people will go to prove these legends right, which really gives some depth to these books. The second place they move into is a very real place. Uh, that's the Great Pyramid of Giza. And they focus not only on its history, but people's efforts to discover the secrets behind it. In fact, the writers do this with other two places that receive heavy focus and are real. Megaliths in Great Britain, such as Stonehenge, and the Natchez Lines in Peru. Those sections, while they are really fascinating and have some really cool stories in it, read more like a history textbook than a book of mythology, legend, and the unknown. To Time Life's credit, they're all thoroughly researched, and they're also presented relatively unbiased. One thing I noticed throughout reading these books is that they don't try to twist the facts of anything so they can reach some sort of conclusion they always wanted you to reach. This isn't some wild speculation that you can easily debunk. In fact, much of what's in these books, and in Mystic Places especially, is about those people who offered up those wild speculations that were eventually disproven because, oh, modern scientific advancements, archaeological discoveries, the application of basic logic. Yeah, there are a few wild stories. The ones from the commercials where someone who stood next to Stonehenge with some sort of rod and felt energy shoot through his hand, and that other one involving weird levitation. Yeah, they're both there. But unlike some half-assed internet article or YouTube video, the authors don't try to tie things to the place beyond saying that it happened, leaving us to conclude things for ourselves in the same way that we're asked to reach conclusions regarding the Bermuda Triangle and the possibility of a separate magical world inside the Earth, like the Savage Land or Scartaris or something. A companion volume to Mystic Places, Mystic Quests, pretty much does the same thing, except it's about things that are the stuff of legend and people's obsessions with finding them. The major focus of this particular volume is mostly on biblical lore, specifically the final resting place of Noah's Ark and the secrets of the Holy Grail. Their presentation regarding Noah's Ark is more or less an account of people's efforts to climb Mount Ararat, because that is where the Bible says it came to rest after the Great Flood in Genesis. The Holy Grail is actually more intriguing, or at least it was to me, probably because I used to watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade like all the time when I was younger, and I thought the whole idea of a quest for the Holy Grail was really awesome. 
because it is. And, you know, I might do a show on that movie or Arthurian legend or the Holy Grail or something, because it's always been something I've been interested in in the same way I was interested in this stuff. But I admit I have not gone as far or read as much into uh, all of that since, oh gosh, maybe college? Uh, aside from watching Excalibur and reading issues, uh, the one the issues I own of Camelot 3000, you know, that's, that's basically the extent that I've done over the last like decade and a half, two decades. Anyway, as far as Mystic Quests and the Holy Grail are concerned, the book takes the approach of what it is, how it has been interpreted and reinterpreted. Is it literally the cup that Christ drank from at the Last Supper? Is it his bloodline? Is it more of an abstract ideal? The editors and writers don't purport to be the authority here and instead provide us with a primer on the topic. It's a well, well, it's a well-researched primer, of course, but they knew their limitations and actually have a bibliography in the back of the book that lists their source material. That's helpful to anyone back then who wanted to investigate something like the Holy Grail or, like I said, alchemy, which was the focus of The Secrets of the Alchemists, a book that was probably my least favorite of the ones I checked out. I think this is because while the others could all tie something to the present day, there's not much of that in the whole alchemy discussion. The Secrets of the Alchemist gets into the history of people's efforts to find the source of transmutation and takes a look at the history of the alchemy society in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, but really doesn't go much beyond that. And the way the book series could mix both the ancient or medieval with more modern and contemporary is its real strength. In the search for immortality, we get the obligatory mystic quest for the mystic place, that being the fountain of youth. But there's also chapters about people who claim immortality, or people who live to be extremely old, as well as what was then the burgeoning science of cryogenics. That last topic was one I found fascinating, because at the time it was published in the late 1980s, Cryogenics was getting some mainstream attention, and people were actually convinced enough to invest in it and put it into their end-of-life planning. But in the intervening decades, this was, well, I don't know if it was debunked so much as it proved untenable for the companies that were practicing it. I can't remember what podcast I listened to. It might have been an episode of Backstory, or it was an episode of This American Life, but they, they actually did this segment on one of the companies that did cryogenics and how the upkeep of the frozen corpses costs a lot of money, so much money that it forced these companies out of business and the bodies were being kept stored in like people's garages and stuff. So with that in mind, the curiosity found in the search for immortality here is kind of fun to read if you follow up with this sort of and then what happened in the past 30 years. Such curiosity and speculation as to whether or not any of this strange stuff works or is true can be found in the last volume I read, which is called The Psychics. And how many TV shows and movies have we seen over the years where someone has psychic powers? Again, none of what is in this book is presented as absolutely true or absolutely false, just as weird, mysterious circumstances. Some people have claimed to have predicted events. Others claim to be able to psychically heal. But then there's that whole 
late 80s, early 90s phenomenon of police using psychics to help them solve crimes. I mean, I'm sure that some police departments still do this, but it's the type of stuff you would have seen on shows like A Current Affair at the time. And that kind of fringes where stuff like Mysteries of the Unknown lived and still lives to a certain extent. I'd say that like the X-Files is the most mainstream any of this fringe unknown stuff ever really became. And you'd think that with my interest in these topics, I would have been like an X-Files mega fan, a stan, as the kids say these days. I'm not really. I mean, I watched the show. Uh, not every weekend when it was on, just like from time to time. And I remember going to see the first movie of the theater, but um, I was a casual fan at best and really enjoyed it, but never really became like, uh, you know, absolutely absorbed and, uh, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica guy level of um, X-Files fan. Remember me? I'm the kid that had a report to on space. Then I got the new Encyclopedia Britannica. He had a report due on space, and then he got the new Encyclopedia... I think I made that abundantly clear. Um, yes. Anyhow. Granted, I think had I been, like, maybe at the beginning of high school or a couple of years younger, I might have been really, really into it. The X-Files premiered around the time I started going, thinking of going away to college. And once I got to college, you know, I still had comics and, and would watch a lot of movies and stuff like that, but... My TV viewing habits shifted from endless hours of syndicated TV and genre shows to stuff like Friends and the eight hours of Sports Center I needed to watch every day, you know, when I wasn't in class. But Mysteries of the Unknown has a place in popular culture because of all the rather terrible basic cable shows and YouTube videos that dot the landscape as they take the formula established by Time Life as well as 1970s and 1980s shows like In Search Of and Ripley's Believe It or Not, and put it all into perpetual reruns. I actually don't watch these shows on a regular basis because I don't have the time or I find them like the bad kind of cheesy. Because at least this book series, while cheesy in places, had some academic chops and didn't try to rely on some guy with weird hair to become a meme for its appeal. Now, one series that I also watched in the late 1980s and early 1990s that also has a far-reaching legacy, albeit more with true crime than the unknown, even if it did tackle the occasional strange phenomena, is NBC's Unsolved Mysteries. And that's in the second half of this episode, which I'm going to cover right after this. affairs, rage, revenge, testosterone poisoning, gunshots, sculpture, 
feminine hygiene products, naked car crashes. You know what we haven't had in a long time? And liver. Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, the audio adaptation, coming to your ear holes in late 2020 on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Liver is my life. Unsolved Mysteries debuted as a series of one-hour specials airing on NBC on January 20th, 1987. These specials, there were about six or seven in all, were hosted by Raymond Burr, Carl Malden, and then Robert Stack. And Stack hosted the last few of them and eventually became the host of the series when it began airing in September of 1988. The show ran on Wednesday nights. It was a top 20 show for its first three seasons before dropping into the top 30 and eventually getting canceled by NBC in 1996. CBS picked it up in 1997. They added Virginia Madsen as a co-host and ran it for two more seasons until 1999, but eventually axed it as well. The show, like I said before the break, was geared more toward true crime than the unexplained type of the stuff that Time Life was giving us over in Mysteries of the Unknown. But it did dabble in the weird from time to time, and certainly provided a weird and creepy mood, something that was helped along by Stack's hosting and narration, which was intense but not completely over the top. Of course, Robert Stack had made a career for himself back in television's golden age playing Elliot Ness on The Untouchables, and he brings the same kind of intensity to the show an intensity that the show needed because it was also competing with America's Most Wanted, the Fox show hosted by the similarly intense John Walsh that had kind of a similar format. There was a case that needed solving, reenactments of the crimes were often staged, and the show had a call center where you could dial in to help. But while AMW specifically focused on fugitives, Unsolved Mysteries went beyond crimes and talked about people who wanted to be reunited with long-lost siblings or other problems. The reenactments, by the way, sometimes featured actors who are now well-known way before their time. These included Cheryl Hines, Daniel Day Kim, David Ramsey, Taryn Killam, and Matthew McConaughey. It's hard to sum up the entire series, to be completely honest. I'm in the back half of a podcast episode that I'm trying to keep to about an hour. And honestly, Unsolved Mysteries could be its own podcast. In fact, there are websites devoted to keeping a case file for mysteries, even updating them for today. So what I decided to do instead was pick a random episode, watch it, and hit all of its highlights. And it was easy to find because the show, as of this recording, is available to stream through Amazon Prime. Now, you have to watch a few ads during the episode, but that wasn't really much of a big deal to me. I went with an episode from season two because that's when the show had its highest ratings in that it was the 11th ranked show for the year. And this was season two, episode four, which aired on October 18th, 1989. 
Now, what's cool about the packaging of these old episodes on streaming is that if a case had been updated at some point after the original airing, that update was added to the new episode in streaming, so you didn't have to go try to find it out later. I'm pretty sure this might have been done at some point prior to maybe DVD releases or when the show was airing in reruns on Lifetime in the 90s. The show begins with a disclaimer. This program is about unsolved mysteries. Whenever possible, the actual family members and police officials have participated in recreating the events. What you're about to see is not a news broadcast. I have to admit that the disclaimer did puzzle me the first time I saw it. And I think that's because I'm so used to basic cable reality trash that the idea of events being restaged and using the actual people um, being a novelty or even upsetting to some people struck me as weird. But yes, in many cases, the people involved in the case or the family members were put on screen to reenact the crimes or some other event that was important to the story. In some cases, they're not too bad as far as acting goes. In other cases, whew, even the best director couldn't have saved that scene. The show has a cold open with Robert Stack in a building somewhere dressed in a coat and shirt and tie. Again, he was Elliot Ness, so he's just projecting that serious Elliot Ness image, and he knows how to do it. I thought that maybe they'd done a location shoot when I was watching it, but after seeing him walk around in the outside later on in the episode with the lights having that smoky effect you tend to only see on movie and TV sets, I'm pretty sure this was just shot somewhere on a back lot in Burbank. He goes through a summary of the cases we'll see for the evening as the theme plays behind him, and then he delivers the show's intro line. It's live from New York, it's Saturday night, if you will. For every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps it's you. So I played the theme song at the beginning of this segment, and for those of us who are kids in the 80s and 90s, it's an iconic theme song, one that's easily recognizable, and in some cases, scary. My wife cannot stand the Unsolved Mysteries theme song. I personally love it. It's It's got this whole tubular bells thing going. And, and if you watch the intro to the show, you've got like the graphics, which are so just of their time. They are late 80s computer graphics, complete with mysteries written in a scripty font and a granite background. Oh, it's just, it's so perfect. So our first case is a wanted case. Uh, in Lyons, Nebraska, a woman named Anna Marie Anton moves into an apartment, and she's kind of secretive about her life. All that the people around her know is that she is a limp because she was in a very bad car accident one point long ago, and she attends church regularly. She doesn't have a car, and therefore she relies on rides from other people. And at one point, she tells one of her friends and neighbors that she's kind of on the run from her ex-husband and the drug-dealing men with whom he was involved. Then she goes missing. Eleven days later, her body is found in a field completely naked with a blood alcohol level of 0.22. This does not match up with anything that her friends have said about her. State investigators start looking into it and they discover that she was lying about her ex-husband and she was actually living a double life. She tended to hang around at bars in the outskirts of town and eventually started a relationship with the local police chief, Jim Webb. Jim Webb. In fact, she was living in the area of Arnold's Park, Nebraska, before she moved to Lyons, and the speculation is that she moved to be with Jim. But he was already involved in a relationship, and when she confronted him about the relationship, she kind of lost it. 
The confrontation turned violent. He killed her. Then he removed her clothes and all possible evidence that tied her to him and deliberately dumped her body in a field that was technically on a Native American reservation because he knew that it might cause jurisdiction issues. Once the Nebraska State Police CSI'd her apartment and his apartment, they found traces of blood everywhere and well, and they eventually matched it up to him. It's very much of the true crime template that we were already seeing from America's Most Wanted at the time. And we would see in this show that uh, Unsolved Mysteries directly influenced in a big way, which is Dateline, the NBC show. Granted, Dateline does tend toward being a news magazine show like the venerable ABC program 2020, but in recent years it's been more of a true crime show that basically focuses on a mystery. A case like this would fit in very well as it has all of the intrigue you look for in this. You've got a woman who moves into a small town and seems to have a bit of mysterious past, but then she disappears and it's discovered that she has been leading a double life and sleeping with the chief of police and he's now the prime suspect in the murder and he's on the run. I mean, where is Keith Morrison when you need him? Thankfully, an update is available as Jim Webb was picked up in 1993 when the show was rerun because a guy he worked with at a construction company in Florida saw him, saw the show, and called in. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter. He served eight years in prison and then was released. Next up is a Lost Loves segment, and that is about siblings in the Rogers family of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. They were separated from one another when they were very young. These children were growing up in a log cabin and were living in abject poverty with an alcoholic father who beat their mother and most of them as well. Eventually, the, the kids, and there are six of them, are taken away by CPS and put into an orphanage. And the last time they saw one another was in 1968 at their mother's funeral after her suicide. Their father was at the funeral as well, but he was in police custody because he was serving time for killing someone in a fight in Arkansas. He eventually died as well. During the 1980s, the kids start trying to find one another, with three of them reuniting in 1984. And that is where the bad acting and the reenactments that I mentioned comes in. They have the adult children reenact their reunions, and they recite their lines like little kids doing a play in class. It's kind of charming and just makes the show... Kind of fun to watch in that regard. But overall, it's a touching story because as the three of them meet up and then return to that log cabin, we get a retrospective of their lives as children, and it doesn't feel exploitative in the way that a show like this certainly could be. I think what helps is that Stack commits to a very straightforward narration of the segment, and the producers show similar restraint, letting the siblings speak for themselves, especially because a mystery still remains, and that is the location of the two remaining brothers. That, by the way, is updated at the end of the segment, as the day after the show aired in 1989, they called into the show, and contact was eventually made with the siblings. Moreover, the producers were at the airport when they got off the, on the plane to meet them. It's a very sweet moment, and one thing I noticed was how the updates were shot on video while the actual segment was shot on film. I suppose that was done to save time and money. The other thing that is wonderfully noticeable about the entirety of this episode, and really most of the episodes I've watched in the, the last couple of years of Unsolved Mysteries, is all of the 80s fashion and styling. And I don't mean 80s as far as we're having an 80s night cosplay type of stuff. I mean like the everyday look of somebody in 1989 and like 
you know, middle of nowhere, Nebraska. Everything about it, it's just this perfect time capsule. All right, so getting back into the show, we have we have an update on a story where in America's Most Wanted fashion, someone called into the show and got this person captured. The guy's name is John Mooney, who was wanted for paying um, to have someone killed in Georgia in the late 70s. Both he and his hired murderer had been convicted and sentenced, but Mooney escaped, and he was found living under the alias of Robert Kelly. Huh. And is now serving a life sentence. The final story of the episode is an unexpected death. In this one, a Cook County, Illinois police officer named Ralph Probst is shot in the back of the head through his kitchen window while his wife was in the next room and had dozed off on the couch while watching the Academy Awards. His friend and fellow cop Bob Borowski does the graveside promise to find his serial killer, and at one point they link it to Sam DeStefano, a mobster they have been charged with guarding who hated Probst, threatening to kill him. However, many of the leads dead end, and the speculation is that someone shot him because he'd been working on a case, probably to break up a vice ring, and maybe got, he got too close to something. Some quick Googling shows that the case is still unsolved, at least as of 2017, and is still considered a cold case in Illinois. I also found that there have been articles published here and there over the years that speculate that it might actually tie to other killings, but nothing has seemed to come of that. Although the case was covered on two Unsolved Mysteries-related podcasts. See, I told you this would be an episode-by-episode show in itself. Those podcasts, by the way, are called Resolved Mysteries and The Stack Pack. I can't vouch for either of them. I've never listened to them. But I suppose if you're a fan of the show, they might be worth checking out. As for Unsolved Mysteries itself, the show was revived on Lifetime in 2000, but Stack's illness and then death in 2002 stopped production. It was then revived in 2008 by Spike, and it was hosted by Dennis Farina. That revival ran for 175 episodes until it was canceled in 2010. Despite cancellation, though, the creators of the show run Unsolved.com, which is the show's official site, that includes case updates and an online forum for anyone who has tips on one of the still unsolved cases. The show also had a YouTube page going where viewers can submit their own cases. Recently, though, Netflix rebooted Unsolved Mysteries and dropped the stack of episodes. Sorry, I couldn't resist. On July 1st, 2020. I watched the first episode. I have to tell you, I couldn't get through it. There was no host... No narration, only one case for the hour or so. In other words, it's like they took a generic true crime show and slapped the title Unsolved Mysteries on it, thinking, you know, people would go for it, right for the nostalgia value. The thing is, though, when you get rid of the elements that made the show charming and interesting, the host, the presentation, the narration, the reenactments, the call center, you lose the show. It doesn't need to be more sophisticated or seemingly intelligent than it is when you watch it in reruns. Yeah, true crime has its own fandom and and its own sort of rules, so to speak. But to the people who really want to watch it for the nostalgia value, knowing that it's on Amazon... I don't know if I'm going to want to watch the new stuff if it's not the same. And and I know Robert Stack's not with us anymore, but you could have gotten a a host and and done it in the same format and kind of done just a just a remake of the original with new cases and it would have been really really interesting to do, but no, it's just 
it literally wasn't the same and that was the um and that was the that was the problem so unsolved mysteries itself i really love it, love watching it when i when i catch an episode here and there it wasn't a show that i watched on the regular during the television season but it was like a regular part of my summer rerun watching because that was around the time where um i could go to bed later and therefore uh you know, I could stay up and actually watch this. And I honestly remember it more for the theme song and, and Robert Stack than any of the actual cases, which is why I wanted to, you know, play it, play us in with that and stuff. But like Mysteries of the Unknown, it also faded from in my interest over the time. Not entirely, mind you. Since my time combing the Stacks and Sable Library... I would always come back to these unsolved mysteries of the unknown in some way or another. I had a friend in high school who at one point got obsessed with the Montauk Project. That's an urban legend slash conspiracy theory surrounding possible secret government experiments at the Camp Hero military base at Montauk Point. We would ride our bikes to the library in the neighboring town of Patchogue where we would, he would check out books on interlibrary loans. And the moment he got a car during our senior year, uh, we drove all the way out to Montauk. And I think we took my girlfriend with us, too, and uh, did some urban exploring. Now, I will completely admit that I was a total wuss when it came to, like, sneaking around an old army base because I was afraid I'd get caught. And I lived my entire life at that point worrying about whether or not I'd get in trouble for something. I still live my life worrying about whether or not I'll get in trouble for things. But honestly... Um, it was kind of cool, and the Mantle Project in itself and that whole thing probably could be its own episode one day. Um, it'd be worth a trip out there, too, even though I'm like, God, I think I'm at like a good 9, 10-hour drive away from Montauk Point where I live in Charlottesville. So I don't know. I'll, I'll stick a pin in that one, right? So as the 90s wore on into the early 2000s, you know, after high school and after that trip with that friend, um, you had sites like Snopes pop up, you know, because the internet came. And it really, in a fun way and in a crazy scary way, put these things back into our um, conscious, you know, into our, into, our, uh, into our orbit, so to speak. And I used to spend a lot of time looking at urban legends. Uh, probably should have been doing work <laughs> at my office job. To this day, I'm amazed I didn't get fired. I'm not surprised that it got laid off, but I'm amazed I didn't get fired. And uh, during the last two decades, I've read books like Weird Virginia. I've browsed through various Dark Five YouTube lists. And uh, I really, and I would recommend listening to this. Uh, there are several, a couple like a dozen or so, or maybe a little more episodes of Trentus Magnus Punch's reality from a number of years ago, where he and Chris Honeywell went through each of the big books series, you know, the big book of urban legends, the big book of, you know, et cetera. And um, they were great. They, they kind of scratched this itch um, when I was not expecting it to. And, uh, you know, like I said, every once in a while, um, you know, you approach that rabbit hole and you, you peek your head in and, and, and I look into that and I, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I've, I've always been fascinated with, but, you know, don't have any expertise on it. And I'm looking at these things for the, for the sheer nostalgia of it, you know, do they hold up? 
Yeah, on some level they do. Mysteries of the Unknown, if you can find them in a library somewhere or a used bookstore, you've got the money to just kind of drop some money on it. I'd pick it up or at least flip through it so you can see some really well put together books. Unsolved Mysteries, yeah, go check that out. It's a great way to kill like 45 minutes or something. Um, you know, it's a lunch break or something streaming it over Amazon Prime. Um, and it's it's a heck of a lot of fun to, to see this, even if they're very serious cases and, and can be very grim. But um, it's way more enjoyable than some of the other stuff that we get subjected to from time to time on on television. So that'll be it for the main part of this episode. Uh, I'm not done yet, though. I do have some feedback and I'm going to take a break right now. And when I get back, I'll be reading that feedback. So stick around. swamps to creepy castles, the podcasting hour is your home for horror on the Fire and Water Network. Join me, PJ Frightful, on this quarterly anthology podcast that gazes into the mysterious and terrifying shadows of DC Comics. The moon is full and the bell tolls for midnight, the podcasting hour. back and I'm going to take us out with some feedback from episode 113 that was taped off the radio songs etc from around 91 92 early 93 Robert Ward writes in on Facebook saying oh my god I love the song instant karma it's so hard to choose one song from John's solo period as a favorite though as he is my favorite Beatle like you I find so many times I will quote rediscover certain songs and fall in love with them all over again for the longest time, my absolute favorite solo song was Give Me Some Truth, which I heard for the first time on the radio during a Beatles-themed show. I love that you mentioned Gin Blossoms, too. I really need to listen to more of their songs. Their song, Kelly Richards, about an obsession over a porn star, is effing brilliant. The one you played sounds interesting, and I really need to listen to some more. Well, thanks, Robert. Um, yeah, the... the uh, New Miserable Experience is the album that, that Hey Jealousy comes off, and uh, honestly, um, you know, that's their most known album. Uh, Congratulations on Sorry was the follow-up. Uh, the only song I've ever listened to repeatedly off that one is Follow You Down, which was the, the one that charted. Um, and then, of course, there's the song Till I Hear It From You, which is off the Empire Records soundtrack. Uh, the stuff beyond that, I really have can't tell you anything about um i uh my period of listening to the gin blossoms actively 
would have been that very mid nineties, early to mid nineties period. Uh, and I still listen to it, but, um, you know, thankfully Spotify is my friend in that regard. And I can always check some of their stuff out. Um, I recommend them. I recommend, and I'm always a big, um, proponent of, of a group like better than Ezra. Um, anyway, this is an email from Michael Bailey. Um, and if you haven't had the chance, Mike and I did, uh, a views from the long box about the summer of 1990 that as of this recording just dropped and uh, I had a great, great time talking to him. So go over there to the fortress of Bailey and check that out. It was a really fun conversation, very much like um, the two that we did in the past on pop culture affidavit, where we did uh, the comics of 1994. And then we did that two parter, the crossover from views and, and this show. Uh, about mail order comics and wizard magazine. So it's, it's very much in those veins and, and uh, I had a lot of fun. And from what I've listened to so far, um, it really came out well. So it's good stuff. Anyway, here's Mike, Tom, I'm listening to your taped off the radio episode. And while I definitely related listening to the radio in my room during junior high and high school, I never made tapes like you did. Anyway, you played a bit of a Black 47 song, and it sparked a memory. In my junior year, a guy named Eric entered the Friends group. He had just moved from New Jersey, I believe, and fit in pretty well to the eclectic mix of people I hung out with. He was into music, music you didn't hear much on the radio, and thus I learned of a bunch of groups that I would never have normally stumbled across. One day after school, I think before rehearsal for the musical we were doing at the time, he played the song Calm's he played the song called James Connolly. I really liked it. That Irish Celtic thing always appealed to me, and it had the extra mix of being about a historical figure. So I am into this song like, whoa, and it gets to the bridge where the lead singer is just going on about how he's probably about to die, but they need to fight, and this lyric happens. They locked us out. They banned our unions. They even treated their animals better than us. And Eric, out of nowhere, says... They let their animals form unions? And the magic of the song was gone. Funny story, though. Great episode, as always. Mike. Thanks for emailing in, Mike. And uh, like I said, go check out that Views from the Longbox episode. Also check out um, The Overlooked Dark Knight. Uh, he and Andy Leyland just wrapped up a two-parter about the cult, the Batman storyline that Andy and I actually covered a few years ago on this show. So it'll be interesting to, it was really, really well done. Um, and, uh, really enjoyed listening to that. As for me, November, I've got two things coming out. Um, if all scheduling goes well, Andy and I are going to be talking about, uh, James Bond over on fallen walls, open curtains, which you'll hear toward the very end of November. Um, and in a few weeks again, According to the schedule, Amanda is going to be on here because we are going to be talking about music from 1990 again and how it dovetails with the world of fashion and supermodels. Specifically because 30 years ago, the week this episode is dropping, the song Freedom 90 and the video for Freedom 90 by George Michael were released. And, well, it's one of the most iconic 
music videos of the period and probably one of the best things that David Fincher ever directed. So we're going to be talking about that and then we're going to, our conversation is going to head into the areas of fashion supermodels and that aspect of culture, which um, I really haven't covered too much on the show, but if there's anybody who I'm going to talk about fashion and supermodels and designers and like all that stuff with, it's going to be my wife. So come back for that. Until then, you can leave a comment on Facebook. Uh, follow me on Twitter at PopAff. And uh, as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. <laughs>